0: Days where it's got a camera that lets you in, the mat was operated by weight. And, and so when you stepped on the mat, the door would open. And at 50 pounds, I couldn't open the door. But at 75 pounds, Delilah could. <laughs> and Delilah could find her way across the highway and down to the Piggly Wiggly and step on the mat and walk right back to the meat department (laughs) whenever she needed to. Walk out of there with whatever the butcher had on hand. But everybody knew Delilah, and everybody, again, it was a small town, and it uh, it was a great place to grow up in many ways, and in other ways, well, maybe not so much. But it was a different time, and it was a different place. And even when I go back, it's not the same. And certainly Northern Virginia is not Chilhowee, Virginia. Our culture, and 50 years ago, 40 years ago, is not 2013. Our culture has changed. It's changed dramatically in ways. I think back to my grandparents, and I think about the technological innovations that they saw From 1900 to, say, 1975, I I didn't even have airplanes when my grandparents were born. But I think there's been more cultural changes in the last 50 years than they saw technologically in their day. And in large part, these cultural changes have now become official. For most of Christian history, Jesus' warnings in our passage today have had a particular application. When we look back at the early church in the book of Acts, and in subsequent times until Constantine, what Jesus said would happen about persecutions happened on a day-to-day basis. In other areas of church history, we've had similar times of persecution, such as the French Huguenots. And even today, many Christians around the world live under the thumb of persecution. And our church has a tradition of praying for what we sometimes refer to as the persecuted church. Usually that means praying for people in communist countries or those dominated by radical Islam or Parts of Africa dominated by animism. But for most Americans, Jesus' warnings here seem to have more of an academic flavor. Oh yeah, we we know this happens. It's happened in the past, and yes, it's happened to others around the world, but in large part, it doesn't necessarily touch us personally on a day-to-day basis. And I I want to suggest that what we've experienced here in America the last 300 years, 200 years, is the exception rather than the rule with regard to the history of persecution of the church. For most of America's history, our culture has been uh, defined in large part by Christians or those who grew up under the influence of Christianity, defining principles such as the Golden Rule or marriage and divorce or even laws regarding the honoring of the Sabbath have been ingrained and encoded in our laws for centuries. But as Bob Dylan would say, the times, they are changing But even in small-town America, where I grew up, in the Bible Belt South, where Christianity had some of its longest-lasting impact, there could sometimes be a hollow morality to it. Going to church often was just more part of the cultural expectation. Once inside, the gospel may or may not be preached, and the people in the pews may or may not be Christians but certain standards of life were defined. And not perfectly. I mean, after all, it was the South with its peculiar prejudices, and it was often hypocritical. Now, for those of you who are in the... I'll give you an example of how this was, but for those of you who are under 35, uh, music in this country used to be published on what were called records. They were flat. And they had uh, uh, songs on both sides, and you had to play them on what was called a record player. So, uh, and this, uh, there was a bluegrass uh, album published many years ago by the Stanley Brothers that on the one side it had the songs about Saturday night. And how wild Saturday night could be, on the flip side, you had Sunday morning, and just how holy things needed to be at that time. But even in peaceful moral, uh, peaceful moral culture, there can be times of persecution about those who live for the gospel. Let me tell you another little Ch Howie story. When I was, uh, I became a Christian when I was 13. It was eighth grade. And, uh, the next year, I ended up being on the wrestling team by some dint of fortune. And, uh, believe it or not, I used to be about 112 pounds. Not anymore. Uh, that was, that was another day in time for all of us. But I, but uh, I was just a freshman on the team. It was my first year, and the team had been pretty good. And we had the captain of the team was uh, I think in the heavyweight class, and he had been the state champion the year before. And his name was Bear Dog, and he was uh, Bear Dog Blevins. And he had a couple little brothers on the team, and they were called the Bear Pups. Well. There came a point where somewhere along the way, a coach on the team, a volunteer coach, uh, was getting married. And the boys on the team thought they ought to present him with a gift, and somebody came up with the idea of presenting a plaster-cast torso of a woman's body. It was hideous. It was awful. And 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 to make matters worse, they wanted everybody to sign it in order to present it to him. Well, I didn't want any part of it. That wasn't a very that wasn't my idea of Christianity. At least my witness wasn't going to let me go there. And I got I got a little ticked at the suggestion. Well, somewhere along the way, somebody signed my name to it took the initiative and signed my name to it themselves and then I had a little confrontation with the bear dog about because he was the one that was pushing this idea and it and the the weight room for the wrestling team wasn't just used by the wrestling team it was used by all the athletes in the school and so this confrontation took place among a lot of people and it wasn't pretty and I'm sure I didn't act as well as I thought, as I might think I should now. But it was a conf, it was, wasn't nice. Somehow, in God's mercy, for the rest of that year in, on the wrestling team, whenever we would take a trip on the bus, people would ask me about Jesus. And we would talk. Christianity, we would talk about the gospel. A couple of years ago, Bear Dog and I caught up on Facebook. He's now a Baptist preacher. (laughs) And we talked about our incident many years ago. It had an impact on both of us. But let's return to our passage. And let me give you some context here for Matthew chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus had been going around to various villages and cities. He'd seen large crowds with huge needs, which spurred his compassion. But there was only one of him at that time in redemptive history, so he was limited in time and space. And so he picks out his 12, as we read a couple of weeks ago. He picked out his 12 and chose them. And then last week we saw how he instructed them and how to go about their task. In today's passage, Jesus warns his disciples and us about the inevitability of opposition to the kingdom of God and of the persecution of of the kingdom's ambassadors. Now as we said before, opposition to the kingdom of God is not new. It's recognizable as a common theme throughout redemptive history in the Bible. From Satan in the Garden of Eden, a spiritual warfare, warfare started. And so throughout the Old Testament, God's people faced persecution from Abel to Noah to Joseph to the people of Israel in Egypt, and then later in exile in Babylon, and especially the prophets who were thrown into the fiery furnace, or to lions, or sawn in two, were thrown into pits. And of course, in the New Testament, we see Jesus himself being persecuted and eventually killed. And in the book of Acts, we see Stephen and James martyred and Paul chased from city to city on his missionary journeys and imprisoned for his faith. Throughout church history, starting in Acts begins the crucible of persecution that Jesus talked about, and it's continued in various forms throughout the centuries. And the sources of the persecutions are various. It may be from Satan himself who tempted Eve and who desired to sift Peter like wheat, It may come from the religious establishments, such as false prophets in the Old Testament, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who represent the religious strains of both conservatives and liberals in the New Testament. Persecution may come from governments, both foreign and domestic. It may come from neighbors, like Ahab, who coveted Naboth's vineyard. It may come from family, like Joseph, It may even come from within the church itself. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus that there would be fierce wolves from among you. We've seen persecution by religious people in our day, religious authorities, such as the head of the Episcopal Church in the US, Kathleen Shorey, who because she, uh, because there are Episcopal churches, which has opposed the ordination of gays, they still desire to keep their church property. But the presiding bishop has stated that she would rather sell church property to Muslims than at a discount than let the conservative congregations pay full market value for it. Now, Dr. Dave. In preaching on his passage last week, the preceding passage noted the particular instructions that were given to the particular twelve disciples for their particular mission on that particular occasion, and it had limited applicability. You might remember he said, "You know that you know don't take your your wallet with you, don't take your purse, don't take an extra set of clothes." And and Dr. Dave was very careful to say that that had some limited applicability. But today's text is a little different, and the warnings in these passages have more of a universal flavor. Most of what Jesus warned about in our passage did not take place and did not occur to the disciples when they went on that particular journey. His warnings about the uh, what would happen uh, before the gentiles and the governors that didn't happen to the 12 when they got sent out right then that happened later in acts and so there's a different applicability Matthew as a, as a writer does not always write in a chronological order he writes by subject matter and so he may take things from uh, on a common theme and put them together in one place. And that's a fine that's a that's a justifiable and good way to write. But sometimes it can lead to a little confusion like we have here. But the sending out of the twelve seems to have been a practice run. He will send them out at this point, and they'll come back and they'll give reports and feedback. In the meantime, he wants them to make sure that they know that this is going not going to be one of those your best life now deals. So, you've been selected disciples, Christians, you've been chosen. You want to be a Christian? You want to be a disciple? You want to be Christ-like? Here's your mission, he said last week. And here's what's in store for you. Persecution, from men, from civil authorities, religious authorities, and even in one's family. In many places today, Muslims who convert to Christianity will be cut off and disinherited by their families. But that's not just true of Muslims. That's, we've seen that. We've seen an example of this with someone in our own congregation, a college student. who who did not grow up in a Christian home, but went to college and became a Christian. When she came back from home, came back from college to home, that didn't go over too well with Mama. Led to conflict. Eventually, our college student and her belongings were put out on the street. She had to make her way, essentially cut off from her family. We have instances instance of persecution by our own government, by the IRS, who singled out Samaritan's Purse for audit. Hadn't been the Billy Graham uh, family of, uh, of uh, ministries, had not been audited for 50, 60 years, But when it came time for opposing gay marriage in North Carolina, Samaritan's Purse had a voice and that didn't go over well and so all of a sudden, all of their organizations got audited. Persecution? I think so. We see Christians routinely persecuted in academic settings where Christians are marginalized or ridiculed in the classroom. I've known of more than one parent of a college student, co-ed, living in a a dorm on a secular campus, who reports back that their daughter or son was ridiculed for being a virgin. It's what Peter said. People think it's strange when you stop a sinful way of life and don't run with them anymore. They end up speaking evil of you. Even the church, even within the church, there's persecution. Dave Dorst's father was excommunicated by the PCUSA for his stand for the gospel. To be sure, all of these forms of persecution are milder than what happened in the early church and and milder than what's happening to many Christians around the world today. But as I said at the beginning, we don't live in Chalhaui anymore. Our cultural context is changing, and I'm not here to prophesy anything, but it's not hard to envision how things might play out. Our society is on the verge and indeed has crossed the line in many places of calling evil good and good evil. If we dare call ourselves and other people to repentance like Jesus did, like John did, like the, early, like the disciples of the early church did, like we're supposed to do at every Lord's Supper, and whether our sins that, of which we need to repent are greed or murder or gluttony or sexual promiscuity, straight or gay, if we oppose the concept of gay marriage, then we are deemed the evil ones in society. And this may well put us in line for institutionalized persecution. Indeed, the Supreme Court decision that came out earlier this summer sets up the very legal table for doing that. So Jesus, having warned us about persecution, also gives us instruction on how to handle it. Even before in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had given some ideas about this. He had alluded to it. And the first thing that he said to do when you're persecuted is to rejoice. Sounds odd, doesn't it? Blessed are you when men shall persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The next thing Jesus says to do, also in the Sermon on the Mount, oddly, is to pray, and to pray in an odd manner. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have to humbly keep in mind that we too, according to Romans 5.10, were all enemies of Christ, yet he died for us. We, by our sin, are as responsible for Jesus' crucifixion as any Roman soldier who was there that day. And yet Christ prayed for those who killed him. And by grace, he prays for their and our forgiveness. We have to remember that we're not that far removed from it ourselves. Even persecution is forgivable. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, that there's no sin which is so bad that the love of Christ can't reach it. Paul was the great persecutor of the faith in the early church. He chased Christians from city to city in order to put them to death. But God intervened. And so there may be enemies of the kingdom today who will turn out to be its mainstays tomorrow, and they need our prayers, and we need to stay humble. So pray for those who persecute us. We go back to our passage in Matthew 10. He gives several things. First, don't be surprised. Be on guard. Come to expect it. Beware of men. Jesus says. Next, he says, don't be naive. Be wise as serpents. Now, after that little episode in Eden, snakes don't have a good reputation in the Bible, right? But there's something about them, even in snakes, that Jesus commands for us. It's their watchfulness, it's their wariness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but but in your thinking be mature. On the one hand, we might give people the benefit of the doubt. But on the other hand, let's not go around believing that man is basically good. And at the same time, while we are to be as wise as serpents, Jesus says, also, be innocent as doves. Be without guile. These are two seemingly disparate concepts in tension. But the Apostle Paul constantly reminded those who received his letters about these things and about this tension. To the Philippians, he wrote, Be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. To the Colossians he wrote, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer each person. To the Ephesians, he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. In the Romans, he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good, but innocent as to what is evil. So Paul also says in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, that's not always possible. But Peter says, look, don't bring it on yourself. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure it? That's not the gospel. But live in such a way as that they can't find anything to blame you for. Now, we live in the political capital of America, and we see on a routine basis how scandal mongers in the media and political enemies scrape the the bottom of the barrel to find dirt on people. And now with the NSA having access to records, it's not hard to find. But this is nothing new. Daniel, in the Old Testament, was a a righteous man, and his political enemies sought to find something on him. Go get the dirt on Daniel. And they couldn't find any. And so they had to make up some new law and say, okay, well, we know we can't find what he's done, but if we make a new law, then we know he'll violate that. And so they contrived something for Daniel. But he was living in such a way is that they couldn't find anything wrong. Peter finishes, "If you do if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, then this is a gracious thing in the sight of God." Peter, who had denied Christ at one time, later after healed a man, he and John healed a man in the temple and they suffered for it at the hands of the religious authorities. And when they left, they found that they considered themselves worthy to suffer for the to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. That must have been very redemptive for Peter, who had denied Christ at that very same place. Back to our passage, Jesus says, "Don't be anxious." Do not be anxious about how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now this doesn't give us license to be lazy or nonchalant or unprepared. It does mean that we're going to need faith in the midst of persecution. But what a comfort to have calmness to have the Spirit of God working in you and comforting in the time of persecution. Paul, the apostle, is a great example of this calmness in the face of persecution when he was on trial in front of various Roman and, and Galilean authorities, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa in Acts 26. He was calm and he presented the gospel to the point where Agrippa said, would you convince me to be a Christian even now? And finally, Jesus says, endure. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, there's an implicit warning in what Jesus has to say here, and that is to not compromise the gospel. And that is a tremendous temptation in all ages, and especially ours. It is this temptation to compromise the gospel, to bow to the whims and whims of the culture, is exactly what mainline Protestant churches have done for the last hundred years. And if we end up telling sinful people, including ourselves, that we can continue or that they can continue to live in sin without any repentance, then we've left them to their sin. We've left ourselves to our sin. And they or we will never realize our need for substitutionary atonement for sins. They'll never find grace if you don't tell them of their need. We'll never find it. And we've left them and we've left ourselves. our eternal doom. The gospel is that the kingdom of God is here. It doesn't always look like it in the face of persecution, and there's times when it just takes faith to believe it. But as the hymn goes, this is our Father's world, and though the wrong seems also strong, God is the ruler yet. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our text ends with a promise of Jesus' return. I say to you that you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, I I don't know how all that fits into the apocalyptic narrative. I'm not going there. There'll be going to be more on that when we get to Matthew 24, and I'll let Dr. Dave deal with that. But to slice it to say that one day, our king will return. And in the meantime, we may well be ridiculed for thinking that way. But ultimately, these are spiritual battles. There's, they are God's battles, and Jesus is the king of his kingdom. In the meantime, we are more than conquerors. Paul, in the face of death, proclaims, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory and honor together. In the face of of persecution. We can all take comfort in the way Paul addresses it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your comfort of it. We need your Holy Spirit to live. We need to be humble toward our enemies, and we need to pray for them. Lord God, we do pray that you would come quickly. In the meantime, we're, we thank you for these words whereby you never leave us or forsake us.